I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope game for poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive writing edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in the Wexler Studio by Lily Applebaum, curator of the Brodsky Gallery, creator of many symposia here at the Kelly Writers House, including opening events, commenting on the gallery's shows, among them Philadelphia Future Perfect, the intro to which I recommend and is available on YouTube, whose poems have appeared in Apiary and elsewhere, who merges interests in poetry and poetics, environmental science, and social media, who tweets fascinatingly at Citrus Aid, and who has helped co-convene a wide-open online course on modern and contemporary poetry called ModPo for the past three years and is a longtime member of the Writer's House community. And by Cecilia Corrigan, a writer and performer and sometimes stand-up comedian based in New York, someone who spent many years here in Philadelphia, including a stint of four fabulously generative years, spending a lot of time in this very cottage whose debut book, Titanic, published by Northwestern in 2014, has already made a, ahem, titanic impact with positive reviews everywhere and a spot among FlavorWire's top 10 poetry books of the year who worked on the HBO series Luck with David Milch and has recently finished her first screenplay. And by Michelle Taransky, teacher, poet, poetry series convener, aesthetic enthusiast, whose 2008 collection Barn Burned Then won the Omnidon Poetry Prize that year, who teaches critical writing and creative writing here at Penn, is a dear, dear friend of the Kelly Writers House, the reviews editor of Jacket 2 Magazine, and whose poems in her 2013 book, Sorry Was in the Woods, are said by Susan Howe to be, quote, propelled by an urgent and luminescent perseverance in the face of finding one's way step by step in these dark times. Hey, how about that Susan Howe blurb, Michelle? I might be her new Emily Dickinson. I think you, you're the perfect person to have here today. And Cecilia, stand-up comedy, really? I do my best. Does that mean you're, that means there's pressure on you to be funny in this conversation? <laughs> um, I guess there is now. Um, and Lily, how many tweets have you done? I'm going to go ahead and say I might be at 19,000 today. Wow. Might be. That's it's maybe 19, As of airtime, 19,235. <laughs> And that beats my own 9,355 <laughs> by 10,000. So I'm feeling ashamed today, I think, or maybe relieved. <laughs> well, today uh, we four have gathered here to talk about two poems by Emily Dickinson, the poem given the number 269, 269, famously known as Wild Nights, Wild Nights, and the one numbered 732, less well-known, which goes by uh, most of its first line, she rose to his requirement. But it should be she rose to his requirement dropped. Uh, we don't, alas, have any audio recording of the voice of Emily Dickinson, and let's just stop and ponder about what a shame that is that we don't. But in Penn Sound's vast archive of special events and group performances is a celebration of Dickinson's birthday in 1979 held at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, New York City, sponsored by the Poetry Project. Diverse poets that day or that evening came together 
each to read and sometimes to comment on their choices of Dickinson poems, among them Barbara Guest, Armand Schwerner, Maureen Owen, Susan Howe, and Jackson McClough. Wild Nights, Wild Nights was performed by Jan Heller Levy, and She Rose to His Requirement was performed by Susan Lighties. Here now, then, are these two poets reading our two short poems. Wild Nights, Wild Nights, were I with thee, Wild Nights should be our luxury. Feudal the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. She rose to his requirement, dropped the playthings of her life to take the honorable work of woman and of wife. If aught she missed in her new day of amplitude or awe, or first perspective, or the gold in using where away. It lay unmentioned as the sea developed pearl and weed, but only to himself be known the fathoms they abide. Well, we could easily spend an hour on each of these poems. They're so great and dense. Um, why don't we start with Wild Nights, Wild Nights. The speaker is gendered how? Lily, what's your suggestion on this? I think it's like, it seems because Dickinson doesn't, and others of her poems, shy away from using gendered pronouns. Um, and sometimes she uses one that's unexpected, like um, she'll gender an animal or something, even though it obviously doesn't need a gender. So it seems like we could take it to be like intentionally engineered to not have that so that it, it might be a gender-less speaker or a speaker that doesn't use gender as part of its identity. Michelle, um the sexuality in the poem could also help us figure out the gendering. Do you want to get into that? I mean, cl clearly that's what's happening here, right? This is famously a poem about sexual uh, excitement and desire and activity, I guess. I don't know if that helps us with the gender because we could assume that it was a wild night of two and not know the gender of either. So uh, like Lily was saying, we don't have a gendered pronoun or a gendered object, but we have um, a union, a the, an our. So um, there's an I and a you. Yeah. And who might the you be? I is hard enough, Cecilia, but who might the you? What are some nominations for the you? I might have an idea about the sort of, the kind of uh, sex going on because because the last two lines. That's it, crucial, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of leaning more towards a, a masculine gendered speaker at that point. Um, I suppose we should somewhat spell that out. How, <laughs> how does the, what is, how is the engineering of the uh, sex working you know, out there? More in the is pretty, in. is pretty sexy. More in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we say what more is, Lily, Cecilia? Um, well, you moor a ship if you like come into a port or like a place that you want the boat to stop moving because if you don't tie it down like it will just be carried by whatever current or thing wind happens. So you along, either so. moor astride a dock or you moor in right. a three-sided yeah. dock. Or you could drop an anchor I guess and that would moor And that would count as mooring I suppose. Mm -hmm. So what kind she's but she's rowing she's not mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. steering a 400 foot <laughs> yacht. Uh, she's rowing. Rowing suggests a certain kind of vessel. And if the vessel is gendered female and the mooring is gendered male, there may be both 
genderings going on at once. So we're assuming that one person is the rower and the other no, is the boat. I don't boat. think we should assume anything, uh, right? Yeah. Um, is this poem that complicated? I think it's only complicated because we want it to be, and we're enjoying the, being uncomfortable in in a poem about sex or erotic that we don't know who he or she, that that maybe to this group is an exciting thing not to know, especially in a poem that alludes to Eden, which is a, a biblical story with one of each gender. Wow. So a sexual romping full of pleasure is characterized by Edenic rowing. What are we saying about it? I think the line rowing in Eden is interesting because... I think when you try to think of the sort of pleasure of the Garden of Eden, you don't necessarily think of doing all that much. You could say that Eden is kind of standing in for organized Christianity, which has removed her. That's, that's you know, the, the difficult space in which she's struggling because she's not, as we know, a strict believer. But we have a suppositional logic here. Wild Nights were I with thee. And it may be that the whole poem is a speculation on what might happen. Michelle, what are we going to do with this were I with thee and presumably the rest of the poem, which is typical of Dickinson and also Wallace Stevens and a lot of other poets? You realize in the end that this was all just something that might have happened or might happen. I think there might be a formal clue that goes with that as well. Um, the, which the first and the last stanza have that rhyme, the luxury, B, C, and the, and the middle stanza doesn't. So, I mean, it has the, the off rhyme or the I rhyme, but that she might be showing us that complication that this is not as easy as we thought. It's not an I and a you and, or a thou. Um, and I think like Lily was saying about the work, if you're an Eden, if you're a believer, um, if you're into the organization of religion and rhyming poetry, you wouldn't have to do the work when you're in Eden. Like she's, there's some sort of fall that's happened, like Cecilia was mentioning, so that she has to do this rowing work and she has to like look at a compass and look at a chart. It should be easy when you're in Eden. But you shouldn't she needs, have to navigate. She needs a guide. She needs yeah. someone to tell her how to have a wild night. Oh, so tell her how to have a wild night, not how to like adhere to the organization. Yeah, it goes either way. Lily, I know you're thinking of something. And the second stanza, she is already in port because like compasses and charts, that's what they're designed to do. They're tools that are made to get you to a safe harbor because like why, if you were a sailor, would you want to be stuck in the middle of the wild raging sea? Let's ask though, why would (laughs) Emily Dickinson as a metaphorical sailor ever want to be out at sea and not finding her way back? Go ahead. I mean, oh. we have to say this, don't we? <laughs> well, yeah, because, I mean, she, her whole life was, like, she's surrounded by um, just, like, a world that is so uh, prim and proper and so decorous, and she doesn't care to be the person in port. She wants to, like, within the within the power of her mind, like, go explore crazy intellectual puzzles and think about really complicated topics that are usually in the world of ports and like uh, proper behavior only for men to think about. So the wild night, I mean, I think we have to go back to the last stanza to understand the difference of the desire here. Um, She, Cecilia, is saying, ah, the sea, that's the most ecstatic line. Mm -hmm. So she's rowing in Eden, she's way out there. 
And the has as its antecedent possibly the original the, the very first the, so presumably a person who is wanted or more than one person. The second antecedent might in fact be the sea. And it's possible that the mooring is actually happening out there in the middle of nowhere. Ah, the sea, I want to moor in these. It's not mooring at all. Mm -hmm. She's like doing, in a way, the opposite of mooring. Cecilia, go anywhere with any of that. Do you get from this poem this desire to be unmoored, actually? She's restraining herself even as she's experiencing the desire. Like there's a lot of roping in and reeling in and and restraint in this this sexy poem. Um, And I think that, you know, even even like the structure and the way that you know the the address the central address doesn't even come until the very last line um is a way of sort of self-defeating that desire to to escape or to you know vanish you know it's it could also Are you be, saying that the constraint of the poem itself is a check against the open-endedness of the desire and if so why constrain herself that way I guess this is for everybody, but, you know, I mean, Michelle, what are you, you, you're constantly teaching this to your students, like you have this constrained form, but this uncontrolled content. Is there a, is there a form content irony? Well, there might be so that if you are a heart in port, you're a heart that doesn't need a compass or a chart because you're constrained, you're anchored to this place and the heart seems to be the thing that she would want to identify with. She wants to be a feeling being. She wants to have these wild nights. But if you're at port, it's not going to be wild. You're not going to be rowing or mooring. You're going to be sort of anchored. The question is, do you want to be anchored or do do you want to moor? Wild nights, wild nights. Were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Feudal the winds to a heart in port. Done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Let's look at the poem 732, She Rose to His Requirement. Let's say in a a very simple introductory way what this poem is about. Lily, what's it about? Just what the poem's about is really in the first stanza. So it's about a younger woman who gets married and the what happens to her or how her life changes uh, once she becomes married, as opposed to how it was when she was single or a girl. Or Does the speaker seem to be the person who gets married? No, no. right? Okay. Does the speaker have an attitude, Cecilia, <laughs> toward the friend person who got married? A little bit. <laughs> what, what, what attitude would a that little be? bit uh, a little bit snide, I would say, but it's it's such an interesting poem because it seems like um she might Dickinson might have actually been telling herself she was writing like an earnest evaluation of of the situation um but the the scorn kind of comes through it comes through. Can we say <laughs> any of us where what are some moments where the scorn comes through? <laughs> I'll start with the diction of the choice of word playthings. Michelle, any other sign of tone? There's something about the to take the honorable work of woman and of wife. That might be ironic, right? Could mm. be. I mean, if it's not, it's very kind and earnest <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and reverent to what 
her friends have done. Uh, I mean, very anti Nietzscheer. Like, th- like this is your work, like being a yeah, wife. This is so Nietzscheerian. Nietzscheerian. Yeah. The sense of work in Nietzscheer is the work I'm doing is actually what you're reading now. And if the speaker Dickinson is saying a, in a story about this friend of hers or someone she knows who's getting married, that's honorable work. But this is honorable work, and it's self-sufficient here. So very Nietzscheerian. Um, that second stanza is it's an if clause. The whole thing is an if clause. Who wants to untangle that and do the sin of paraphrasing it? <laughs> Lily, uh, start us off. What? Okay, well, first of all, what's really, really hard about this poem and that if clause is that the first stanza is so regular. It's like super regular for a Dickinson poem to be the ABCB rhyme structure. It's ABCB and, and the sound. She rose to his requirement drop the playthings of her life to take the honorable work of woman and of wife. So it's mm-hmm. four, three, three, three in beats, right. I think. <clears throat> um, Go ahead. But then the second stanza uses like two different idioms that I'm pretty sure don't really exist in English, which is if ought she missed of amplitude, awe, first perspective, gold. <laughs> uh, like, so if ought she missed of, so if ought doesn't really seem doesn't make sense to me. Maybe it's just like a cool an idiom I'm not aware of. But and also missed of. You would think, I think it's trying to say if she lacked or if she didn't have enough of, um, of wow. amplitude, of first perspective. Wow. But maybe I read it differently. No, no, no. Oh, okay. This is great. Can we come back to the disjunction and non-idiomatic writing here and come back to it? Let's come back to it. But let's start with a plain paraphrase. I'll try the first part of it, and maybe Michelle and Cecilia, you continue it. And I'm reading into this, so tell me if I'm wrong. If she perhaps should not actually go ahead and do this, if she if she should not have shown up at the altar, go ahead, what happens next? I feel like the first line could also be read as if there was something, if she was like using the language loosely, if, if there will be something that she will miss in a way. Mm-hmm. Because she's done this. Because mm-hmm. she's okay. said, I'm getting married. Mm-hmm. What's she going to miss? Oh. She's going to miss awe. She's going to miss amplitude. <laughs> she's going to miss perspective. I mean, Prospective. See, I read it as like... Right? Oh, not perspective. <laughs> I read it as if she didn't have these things if she didn't, if she didn't actually have enough of these, enough of these qualities, as judged by his requirement, when she did get married, like if his requirement was that she should have had a little bit more amplitude or a little bit more awe. It's possible that the key, or one of the keys here, is the it in the phrase "it lay unmentioned." And I'd like for us to spend a minute trying to figure out what would be unmentioned. Is it that if she didn't get married, if she, or if she, if she misses something by getting married? and that that is amplitude and awe, that's something that's never going to get talked about. How am I doing with that so far? Yes? Yeah, but I still think, I think the woman the speaker's talking about has gotten married by the end of the poem. Like, I think she... And the speaker, the Dickinsonian speaker, is speculating as to what would be missed, period, what would be missed in that gesture, in that act. So then we have as the sea, and I take that to be a huge conceit hinge, classic Dickinson, that this whole situation, that it not be mentioned, is like, and what is the simile, as the sea 
develop pearl and weed. You can't just look at the surface of the sea and know where either pearls or weeds are. And presumably pearls are happy, good, beautiful, and weeds are ugly, awful. So there's this sea produces both. Mm -hmm. So this unmentioning, this, I would say, repressing or unsaying is just as, is like the sea doing what? Can you abstract? It's the sea being full of amplitude and awe. But if you don't look closely, it's just the sea. It's just marriage or it's just the opportunity to not get married. Cecilia, what is the sea doing that is like the not mentioning of the awe you've given up by getting married? It's so complicated. Well, it's quite, to me, this stands as quite uh, self-reflexive, if I can get a little bit yeah. biographical, because in a way, um, you know, the, the the situation she's envisioning between um, a husband and his wife is the situation Dickinson experiences between herself and the general world that is not um, interior and private. Um, and I, I also think, uh, so, so in a way, you know, the sea might be her own consciousness. It's just about what's unseen and what's non-explicit and what doesn't have a way of being integrated into the public eye. Further thoughts? I think that there's this covered over maybe by this seemingly kind of cute metaphor of like sea, pearls, and weed is that final line of the fathoms they abide is very, the word abide, I feel like is really powerful when you're talking about a marriage because- mm. and, Tolerated, and like, lived with. Yeah. Uh, it's or not even obeyed. Like, um, obeyed. And so I think like uh, the, this idea that, um, and, and the fact that the sea is gendered masculine by the sea only to himself That's be known. the sea. Um, so as the sea keeps to himself the way in which pearls are developed yeah. and weeds grow in the fathoms, so that is like the suppressing and repressing and non-saying of the experience of the woman in the marriage. To me, it reads like the sea is equated to the husband in the scenario and that he's the one keeping the pearls and weeds like for himself or keeping them hidden or like being the one who forces them to not come out either by marrying this woman and taking her away from her previous life where she could she could enjoy those things more or by like forcing her to abide by his law. She rose to his requirement, dropped the playthings of her life to take the honorable work of woman and of wife. If aught she missed in her new day of amplitude or awe, or first perspective or the gold in using wear away, it lay unmentioned as the sea developed pearl and weed, but only to himself be known the fathoms they abide. So now we're going to go meta. In the first poem, we were focusing on the um, the question of whether the poem itself was acting in const- within its constraints, seeking rowing in Eden or wildness. The second poem we're talking about, the key word is requirement and abiding, which are both structural constraining words. And yet we have a poem that begins ABCB very regular, then does an open-ended rhyme, the Tennysonian rhyme ABBA, 
less regular, and then the last, which is completely irregular, A, B, C, D. There's no rhyme, no end rhyme, and it's the hardest one. And so I'm going to say that the requirement got busted by this poem, and I'd love to hear your reactions to that. That would mean that the form is very radical and is enacting her anti-marriage sentiment. Let's go around and talk more about that, if that's right or wrong or whatever. I'm going to go with that proposition. Um, I think you can see her in the first stanza really doing that work um, of the form. And then by the last stanza, I think what she's saying is, we will only know, we will only be able to fathom if we break the form. And this poem becomes part of the saying of the unsaying. Yeah. yeah. She, she actually knows or she comes to know in this poem because she does the work, I think. Cool. Lily, I'm going to invite you to comment on this issue, but to go back to that really brilliant thing you said about the unidiomatic second stanza, which is just so hard, yeah. so disrupted. Regarding the form and the rhyme scheme, I think um, what Dickinson is doing is comparing almost comparing herself to a woman who would get married and live the normative lifestyle of the time. And she's showing lived experience versus like mentally experienced experience, if that makes sense. Um, so that first stanza would be the one that you would write if you were the married woman. And that so would be the end of the poem. Honorable work is probably not ironic. Um, well. Or at least it's pitched as regular. Yeah. And so that first stanza is like, the surface of that sea is mm -hmm. and then like once you go below that in the poem you get to this second stanza where there's all this like i had to read this stanza like 30 times and i still think i don't really understand <laughs> the grammatical structure of it um this really complicated sub complicated subjunctive tense type of language that's very adrift at sea going deep and fathoming and all that stuff just like she she says in the third stanza. So let's finish up by talking about the two poems together. But what do we learn about Emily Dickinson from these two poems? Maybe on the topic of desire, sexuality, um, the requirements of social relationships, anything. Cecilia, what, do we, what, what did you learn? I'm given the impression that her choices regarding the distribution or lack thereof of her poetry is another form of, um, it's actually like a really intelligent choice, although it's sort of taught as this almost, you know, gender tragedy or something, because it she understands the limitations of her form and of her own existence and of her gender. And she is not going to put herself out there because she knows... <laughs> What will happen? What will happen? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Lily, what, what do you learn about Dickinson in general from these two? Um, I feel like for me, the key is in Wild Nights, Wild Nights, where she talks about a uh, heart in port not having any use for winds, compasses, and charts. And she's really careful to say a heart in port and not a body in port because, like, technically, biographically, she's always in port. Like, she's always at home in a safe place. But heart-wise, soul-wise, mind-wise, she's always at sea wandering not really like finding intentionally so not finding that's like safe place but very much like controlled uncontrollable thinking and desire and then it leads into just straight adamant tone mm -hmm. done with the, she's rarely this adamant <laughs> done with the compass yeah. done with the chart she's throwing these things overboard michelle what did you learn about dickinson or what do we learn about dickinson generally from these two poems i mean i think we can learn things about gender, about challenging gender expectations from her day. 
also sort of challenging what we accept as work, as honorable work, um, and sort of how we can come to know how difficult it might be to come to know and fathom our existence. I think one of the things I like to do with Dickinson, which could be interesting for people who know a lot about her work, or even very little, is to choose a word, like see or work, and sort of trace it through her poems, um, how she uses it in different ways or similar ways, like like Lilia was saying, like, is it the sea as it exists or is it this metaphor for the sea? And then thinking about how you've read the sea in other poems or other stories. Um, because she does come back to some of these images. She comes back to the moor. She comes back to the port um, and other poems. So it's it's not never a static statement, um, but she's definitely full of like awe and she amplifies again and again. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, my final thought is about playthings. Um, you know, it first gets introduced in the most conventional uh, way, either affirmation of marriage of what happens to a woman in the 19th century when she gets married, or even, or even as a cla- an easy criticism of it, she dropped the playthings. And as you go into this poem, you begin to realize that its metapoetic quality, its Nietzscheian quality, is that this is the honorable work, this the thing you're reading. And that if one were to drop the playthings, which would be, oh, Emily, now that you're a properly married lady, this is, of course, all fiction, now that you're a properly married lady, I hope you're not going to spend all that time writing these things on these scraps of paper and sewing them together and putting them into your drawer. It Either professionalize and publish them or stop it. And I think if you drop those playthings, we think about the scraps and the envelopes and the weird reading that she did and the to the, the fragmentation of her learning and all that stuff, it's so radical... These are the playthings. I mean, these are playthings almost in the in the Derridian sense of the language is always play, and you get to play if you're not married. And if you're married, you don't get to do any of this anymore. And the poem becomes more and more radical as it ironizes those playthings. Well, uh, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all three of you, if we do it efficiently, to spread wide, oh, this is Dickinson, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little paradise, something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And Michelle, you're going to pull a C.A. Conrad on us. What do you have for gathering paradise? Yes, I have some amazing tarot cards. Um, It is a deck of tarot cards published by a press called Factory Hollow, which is located in South Hadley, Massachusetts, very close to Emily Dickinson's grave and birthplace. And they've published this edition of Emily Dickinson tarot cards. The front side is um, a close image of one of the walls in her bedroom, and they were illustrated by four different local poet artists, including Emily Pettit and Bianca Stone, and they are gorgeous. They are $25. Go to Flying Object and purchase them, and it benefits a really great arts um, art space that is not unlike the writer's house that really does gather paradise itself. And you can do tarot readings. Yeah, you get, you get all these bonuses. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's so many so things. So again, what's the website or uh, what do you Google? Flying Object Flying and the object. press is Factory Hollow, That's Emily great. Dickinson tarot cards. They're gorgeous. Such a perfect little paradise gathering there. Lily, top that. Oh, I, I certainly can't. But I thought like um, 
if you listened to the poem talk and you wanted to get a collection of Emily Dickinson poems, like a collected work that was like really respected Dickinson's grammar, which can sometimes be hard to find. I just bought the complete poems of Emily Dickinson edited by Thomas H. Johnson. And the I really like it. The big edition from 1955. Yeah. Right? Really important. And it wasn't too expensive. And so, yeah. The big paperback. Okay. Cecilia Corrigan, gather some paradise for us. I, I suppose this book might not need my plug, but my Emily Dickinson by Susan Howe is how I got so interested in it's how you got (laughs) a dickinson 1985 (laughs) a really important book and my gathering paradise follows from cecilia's in a way because i want to plug the gorgeous nothings which is a beautiful book first published by granary in a slightly more expensive edition and now by new directions uh the gorgeous nothings uh edited by marta werner and jen bourbon two remarkable people with lots of advisory help from Susan Howe, the aforementioned 255 pages of envelopes that Emily Dickinson uh, wrote on, um, little scraps of paper, and one of the fragments that's in the book I'll quote from. Um, It's a poem, sort of, written in three distinct directions of handwriting across three pieces of paper that are sort of jammed together, and it goes like this. Clogged only with music, like the wheels of birds, their high appointment of afternoon, and the west, and the gorgeous nothings which compose the sunset keep. Hot damn. She's, <laughs> Emily Dickinson, the, uh, the greatest avant-garde poet that we know. Well, that's all the poetic playthings we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House of the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests. Thanks so much, Cecilia Corrigan, Lily Applebaum, Michelle Taransky, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer, Zach Cardiner, and to Poem Talk's editor, Allison Harris. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be taking the show on the road, and we'll be in New York to talk to some colleagues about poems that Kathy Acker inscribed into her novel, Blood and Guts, in high school. This is Al Fillery's, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.